welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hey, it's Sarah. This week I'm speaking to Matson Taylor, the author of The Miseducation of E.B. Epworth. Matson is a design historian and academic writing tutor at the V&A, Imperial College and the Royal College of Art. As well as working at various universities and museums, in the past, Matson has worked on Camden Market, appeared in an Italian TV commercial and has been a pronunciation coach for the Catalan opera singers. His first novel, The Miseducation of Evie Epworth, was recently published and we met Matt when he was running around the country visiting independent bookshops just as the book came out. We had loads of fun chatting to him and we knew we had to get him onto the podcast. Hi Matt, thanks for joining. Hi Sarah, hello, it's lovely to chat to you again. You too. So I'm going to kick off by going right back to your childhood. I'd just like to dig around in your background a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. As I understand, you're a Yorkshire lad. Absolutely. A proud Yorkshire lad. And that's where the book about Evie is all based as well, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, as soon as you say Yorkshire to anybody, particularly outside of Yorkshire, they immediately think of the Dales and the Moors and all of that kind of Yorkshire, the Bronte Yorkshire. But I'm from a a, a far, I don't know, I was going to say less interesting part of Yorkshire. I better not (laughs) say that. A flatter part of Yorkshire, I should say. That's more like it. Um, The East Ridings and sort of near North, North Lincolnshire, that area. So it's just field after very flat field of cauliflower and, and, and sort of, you know, windmills and things. Beautiful, nonetheless. <laughs> it is gorgeous. I love Yorkshire. So tell me about your childhood. As I understand it, it was pretty idyllic. It really was, to be honest, yeah. And especially now looking back on it, um, you know, from this great age that I am, I kind of think, oh, God, I was so lucky to have been, you know, young at that particular time and, and living where we did. We, we lived out in the country. And I can just remember lots of very long, hot summer days out on the bike or building dens or, you know, getting up to all kinds of scrapes in, in the countryside, in fields, farmers' fields, all over the place. It was just wonderful, actually. I had a great time. It does sound amazing, just be able to be that free. Yeah, well, I can remember, you know, we used to wake up in the morning in the summer holidays and, you know, your mates would be coming around for about half past nine or something. You'd get on the bike and you'd just be off for, for the entire day. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't see your mum or dad again until half past four or something when you came back and just wanted food. Um, and it was a good because this was before mobile phones or anything. And we just occupied ourselves. And it was, yeah, it was great. I had a really good time. I think, you know, having that ability to keep yourself occupied and, and not need outside stimulation is, is a really good thing. And that you know, people who grew up in the 70s, 80s, 60s, obviously before had. And I don't know, maybe now it's a bit different because there's so much stimulation everywhere, which is, you know, another really good thing. But we had to provide our own stimulation in many ways. Yeah, and I also think that the lack of freedom that a lot of kids have these days compared to, because I had a very similar childhood to you. I grew up in the countryside. I remember building dens. Um, And you you think about that now, and a lot of children just wouldn't be able to do that, even if they live in those kind of environments. People are just nervous about them heading out. Absolutely, yeah. And and it just just really wasn't thought about, I suppose, back back when we were growing up. And 
you know, I suppose things things are better in some ways now. Things are a bit bit safer, I suppose. But yeah, definitely not. There's not that freedom of just going out and being out all day. And I suppose now I've got lots of friends with children, and they're they're constantly phoning and texting their kids to see where they are and what they're up to. And that would have driven me mad. I think probably would have driven my mum mad as well, if I'm honest. You know. <laughs> so were you a reader as a child? Well, I was, yeah. No, I, I used to, I enjoyed reading. Um, I was an only child, so I didn't have any brothers or sisters. So I was used to spending time on my own. And part of that was obviously reading. I used to enjoy reading. Um, but I wasn't like, massively bookish. Um, I did lots of other things as well. So, yeah, I mean, I was, I used, I'm, I, I think I'm probably a fairly normal only child in as much that I like spending time on my own but then I also really enjoy spending time with other people and the time spent on my own often it was with a book but you know not all the time I'd be off doing other stuff as well you know making lots of lego lots of building worlds with lego but yeah books were definitely a large part of my childhood yeah excellent gotta love lego I'll go wrong with lego I should have been an engineer I tell you I spent that much time with lego <laughs> what was the first book you remember reading? Um, I think the, one of the first books was Paddington. So I used to love Paddington. So I can remember the television series and I had all the books and I just used to love, I just used to love the Paddington books. I think because they've got a lot of humour in there. Um, and, and Paddington's a bit naughty as well. I used to really like na- naughty children or naughty characters. Be- I think because I wasn't really very naughty. I think I was quite um sort of maybe a boring child or I don't know I, did, I didn't have any brothers or sisters so I mean my it was quite I couldn't really get anybody else into trouble so if I did anything naughty it was always obviously my fault so I was always very aware of this so I wasn't massively naughty and I like the fact that Paddington's quite naughty Paddington's such a great book and it's really just stood the test of time hasn't it we still sell tons of the, the books in the shop and obviously the films in the last few years have introduced it to a whole new generation which is great yeah well exactly and I think I mean that idea of different generations it absolutely is true now with Paddington I mean I found my old Paddington book this morning I've still got it and I've just been flicking through it and I mean I haven't looked at it for years and years and years and it's just fantastic I I just want to read the whole thing now because I think what what's so great what Michael Bond does is you've got I mean there's the there's sort of like you see the world through Paddington's eyes and you've got this kind of quite naive funny um lots of misunderstandings which Paddington does a lot but then you're also seeing obviously the world through well now through an adult's eyes but you know or through a non-Paddington's eyes where you can see that Paddington's wrong about many things and and and, and that it's that kind of sort of I don't know the, the the space in between those two points of view Michael Bond has a huge amount of fun with it and he's brilliant yeah he is when we were messaging before this podcast you said that you also quite like that kind of different points of view you saw in Adrian Mould as well which is totally true isn't it where you kind of as a reader you get a perspective of of what the character's not understanding and what you know to be true and therefore it ends up being quite a funny read. That's it exactly and you know I just I love that and I I love that in you know lots of diaries and lots of good funny books I think they use they use that a lot yeah I mean I've I've got a little tiny little bit of of Paddington here that I I just quite like to read out actually because it really illustrates that quite well. Oh, yes, please. Okay, so he's, he's going off to France and he's done an itinerary and the itinerary is spelled E-Y-E, so like eyes. And uh, so that's his itinerary. So Paddington wasn't quite sure about the spelling of itinerary. But though he had looked through all the E's in Mr. Brown's dictionary the night before, he hadn't been able to find it anywhere. 
On the whole, Paddington wasn't surprised. He didn't think much of dictionaries, and he often found that when he wanted to look up a particular word, it was nowhere to be found. And I just think that's really funny because like, we know we know that you know itinerary is spelled with an I, not an E. But and it's the, the sort of like the funny the, the the fun there is that the mis- complete misunderstanding by Paddington and we we kind of I don't know you feel quite good that you know how to spell itinerary. I mean, as a, as a seven year old child, I'd have been quite oh huh, well I know how to spell itinerary, Paddington. Yeah, um, well clearly Paddington, you don't know what you're talking about. And if I was with you, I'd be able to show you that dictionary. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and there's all that there, but it it is just that you know like the he sees the world in a different way but yet we can still you know that we, we still absolutely know what he means because there are so many weird words in english that i mean even today i can't spell so i mean i think michael bond is just a genius where he can find those moments in in real life where i know that you, you it's very easy to see things in different ways and and he kind of presents both ways to you and finds the fun in the middle of it which is great Fantastic. So let's fast forward to the present day. We're recording this in September 2020, which means that we are still right in the um, height of this COVID pandemic that we've been dealing with for the last six months. What's life like for you at the moment? Lots of working from home. (laughs) <laughs> lots of work all my teaching is done via zoom and, and on screen so i'm having a lot of screen time at the moment all that i mean i say that but i have been going out and visiting quite a few bookshops i've just been up to yorkshire for example um and you know, signing books up there and i was over in oxfordshire a few weeks ago and cambridgeshire and um so that's that i'm, I'm really enjoying that because for about four or five months i basically didn't move out of my it's a very small flat in London. So now at least we can go out and I can go out and, and meet booksellers and, and people like that. That's very good. But uh, when I'm not doing that, it is me and a screen and I'm either teaching or writing or doing emails or something. It was so much fun when you came into the shop. I was saying this uh, earlier as well. And honestly, you've probably visited more bookshops in the last month or so than an awful lot of authors do. And I, I noticed on social media that you've been up to Yorkshire. And it's just, it's lovely, especially for independent bookshops to have authors pop in and say hi. It's just really good to get the face to the book and get a bit of context around the book and where the ideas came from. So That's really nice, though, because I, I really do enjoy it. I absolutely love it. I mean, again, like, you know, go, going back to the, the being an only child, there's moments where I just love being on my own. And the beginning of lockdown was like, I thought, oh, this is perfect. This is just made for me. I, you know, I loved it. And I loved it for quite a few weeks. But then the other side of me just loves being with people and, and, and just hanging out and, and a bit of fun and banter. And that's what you get when you go into the in local independent bookshops. It's it's just brilliant. You know, all, all the booksellers I've, I've met, they've been such good fun. And, you know, they sit you down, have a good natter to you and there's tea and cake and all of that and and I've loved it I really have yeah oh I feel terrible we didn't give you cake <gasps> you gave me lots of banter you gave me lots of <laughs> must remember next time <laughs> let me know I'll give you cake I'm sorry <laughs> so um what are you, have you been reading a lot during lockdown or has it all been work um I've, I've been reading quite a bit to be honest yeah although I've been, I think because a, a lot of my day job is spent reading what students have written I, I teach at university as you know so I haven't been reading as much as I thought I would have been reading actually I've been spending a lot of time watching the telly which is something I don't n- normally do so where the height of you know in that horrible height of lockdown where you thought you'd never leave the door ever again um, I was just glued to lots of rubbish on telly actually basically hurrah for binge watching box God, yeah, it's been brilliant. Yeah. But so I think things like that kept me away from books. But I have been doing quite a bit of reading, actually. Yeah. 
So what was the last thing you read? The, well, the last thing I read, it was, it's by Tracy Thorne, and she's a musician and uh, who I love, actually. And I, I love her music and Everything But The Girl. She was in Everything But The Girl. Um, and I've read her other books. And uh, her last book was, is called Another Planet, and it came out in paperback, I think, just before lockdown. And I, I picked it up probably the few weeks before lockdown went on, and it went on my to-be-read pile, um, which is absolutely enormous next to my bed. And and I th- just a couple of weeks ago, I heard one of her songs on the radio and loved it and then started playing all my old Tracy Thorne and everything but the girl music. Um, and then I suddenly realized, oh, I've got the book that I haven't read. <laughs> so I found the book. And it's just wonderful because it's it's all about her growing up in suburbia as a teenager. And there's this wonderful sense of nostalgia. So there's a nostalgia for the time. So she's talking about the early 70s, uh, which I can't really remember. But still, you know, the t- you get that sense of the 70s there. But also a sense of nostalgia for, the, for her age, for being a teenager. And that's, that's something that I'm really quite interested in. Obviously, you know, the, my own book, Evie, which we'll talk about later, that tries to do that. And it's so evocative of all those feelings that you have as a teenager that I tried to bring into my own book where you're kind of you're you're still a child but you're growing into an adult and some some days you're you feel quite sort of childish and young and don't understand things and other days you're really mature and yeah you're an adult and you know what's going on and all these other adults have got it wrong um and she just is brilliant and she writes in a, a really clear clean crisp prose it's not sort of florid at all and she yeah she I think she's a bit like I don't know Victoria Wood or Alan Bennett in that she can just see she finds an object or a thing or just a word and it's exactly the right word for that place in the sentence to express exactly what she says she's great at using objects to to convey feeling and, and emotion and thoughts you know of people growing up and, and I think as a design historian, I love it when people can do that, when they can use objects and these objects say so much more than just being the object. And she's just fantastic at that. Fantastic. You sold it to me. <laughs> she's very good. And she's very funny as well. I don't want it to sound really pretentious or anything, but she's very, very funny, uh, but in a, in a lovely, gentle way. But it's very tender as well. There's some you know moments where... You'll, you'll be laughing and, and, and crying. And, and the laughing as well, you sort of like laughing with the young Tracy, you know, the, the teenager. Um, but you're also kind of in a nice way. The middle-aged Tracy Thorne is also very gently poking fun at the, the teenage Tracy Thorne because she's, you know, like many of us, you sort of hit 13, 14, 15, and you, I don't know, you start listening to yeah, indie music and like, you know, the world doesn't understand you and you, you're trying to rebel. Um, and of course, we all, do, we all do that, or nearly all of us do that, but you, you don't yeah. think that at the time. You think, this is just me. Nobody else ever feels like this. And, and, and she's very gently mocks herself in a really loving, beautiful way. And it's something that I definitely related to because I was like that. I was that sort of pretentious 15-year-old who, who loved indie music and thought, nobody understands me. And uh, so I just thought it was a brilliant book. I always think that everybody has a book that at some point they've read that has had a significant impact on their life. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be some kind of collected works of somebody very noble. But I think it's a book that you can specifically remember reading that may or may not have influenced you in a particular way. Do you have a book that's like that? And if so, what is it? 
I absolutely do. And I've got a very clear memory of, of seeing this book for the first time and reading it for the first time. The book is, it's the, well, it was the selected stories um, of Kathy Mansfield. And it was a book that I did for my A-levels. And I can remember very clearly seeing the title and thinking, oh, I don't know, I've never heard of this Catherine Mansfield. And short stories, oh, I'm not sure about short stories because, you know, I you know, I want a proper book to get my teeth into kind of thing. And then even worse, I saw the cover and it was this really twee kind of Edwardian lady with a big hat in the garden or something. And I thought, oh, God, this looks rubbish. I'm not going to be interested in this at all. I can't believe I'm going to have to answer A-level questions about it. And I, was, I reacted very negatively to the, to the book cover. <laughs> um, and then I read a story and thought, wow, this is brilliant. Read another one and another. And they are just the most beautiful, precious, um, small objects of art that you can ever find. They're, just, they're like Chekhov short stories or something. Everything's just perfect. And there's so much emotion and depth in there uh, and it just sort of like comes from nowhere because on the surface it's all very I don't know domestic and I mean, a lot of it's filtered around the lives of you know children or, or you know or women and and it is I think domestic you know is, is is a word I mean it's a word that people use quite negatively which drives me mad but I think you know she writes brilliantly about the people's inner lives or, or the domestic life often of women and children and yeah like her prose I, I can remember her prose just jumped out at me it's the first time I thought wow god the writing as well as telling a story the actual words in the sentence can be beautiful and which order they're in and the rhythm that you get when you read it that can be beautiful as well and and it was just it was it was well weirdly enough it was like this moment of epiphany and I say weirdly enough because Catherine Mansfield talks about moments of epiphany in the stories quite often there'll be a, this moment of epiphany at the end of a story um, and and I can remember it super clearly and and I just love her writing and it's been with me ever since I studied it for A levels. I think the thing is though you've just completely proven my point because what you've done there is you talked about a book that you discovered when you were what 17 yeah and it's still with you and it, and you still speak about it with such passion and so much energy and that's that's what I mean by these books because I think the power of a book that it can have on somebody and obviously it's had an impact on you because it made you appreciate books in a different way and then it, obviously that's then influenced what you have then gone on to do that's an amazing story and it has also reinforced the don't judge a book by its cover <laughs> <laughs> exactly no it, it's so true because the cover absolutely put me off and the, the collector's stories one that i've got now i love the cover and it's just like it's the most, like, most perfect cover and you know i can't imagine the the twee edwardian lady and it, in a way that that reminds me of another of my very favorite books the diary of a provincial lady by e.m delafield and and again i'd seen this book around in bookstores and just thought, oh god what a tedious book who wants to read the diary of a provincial lady you know it's that really boring and the cover looked boring and the the title I thought oh god that's a bit boring and I heard the book on radio four I've got again probably just after university 
And I didn't know what, what book it was at the time. I just heard this thing on Radio 4 and I just stopped and thought, my God, this is amazing. What is this? It is so funny. And then they said, it's, you know, that was t- today's extract from The Diary of a Provincial Lady by E.M. Delafield. And I thought, oh, hold on, that can't be that rubbish book that I see in in, in bookshops all over. And I went, and it was, and I just bought, I thought, well, I'm going to have to buy the book. And again, it's the most brilliant, it's the funniest book that's ever been written. And if it had been written by a man, I think, it would be acclaimed as a a comedy classic with Diary of a Nobody and Three Men in a Boat. It's just brilliant. And again, it just focuses, it's got quite a, a small range and it's quite domestic, but what it does, it does brilliantly. And and I return to that book again and again and again, even though actually my cover for that one is a bit rubbish, not my, my lovely Catherine Mansfield cover. <laughs> but it, I absolutely go back to it all the time, yeah. The cover thing, we talk about this a lot in the shop about yeah, how people will just completely decide that a book is just not for them. That statement is so true. And it's a big part of what we do about having to not just show the books to our customers, but also persuade them to try something out even if it isn't a cover they particularly would normally pick up as one particular author um i personally do quite like her covers but they divide opinion ruth hogan um she's a she's written three standalone fiction books which are amazing her book covers are quite feminine there's lots of flowers on them and it's it's the kind of cover that an awful lot of people wouldn't just wouldn't pick up whereas i think they're some of the best books that have been written in the last few years and whenever i present them to people they look at me as if to say (laughs) Why are you giving me that? I go away and buy them and they come back and tell me how much they like the book. Because, well, I mean, it's true. I mean, you should always judge a book by its cover. You know, I mean, people who like books, that's that's kind of what we do. And and, and then you like you see the cover and you do react viscerally to it. And then, you know, sometimes we're wrong, but it, it just, we can't help but judge a, a book by its cover, can we? I mean, it's funny with, with my book, when, when the first draft of the cover came out, it was all extremely tasteful and muted and looked very sort of Scandinavian and looks, looks like, like a beautiful poster that you'd buy in the Conran shop. And I can remember Chris, my editor at Sunless, just sending it to me. And he phoned me beforehand to say, we're sending you the, it's the first draft of the cover now. So don't worry, it will be changed. So, don't, you know, if you don't like it, that's fine. And I thought, oh, God, it's going to be awful. You know, my first book and they're going to send me this horrible cover. And I was, I got really quite, you know, stressed before I even opened the email. And I opened it and I loved it because it was this beautiful, tasteful, you know, Conran style poster. And I thought, oh, yeah, I could see that on my wall. That'd look lovely. I love it. It's fantastic. What's he on about? Um, and I lived with that cover for about two months. And then I think towards the end of January this year, that he, he phoned me again and said, oh, we've, we've got the finalized version of the book. We've just tweaked it a bit. And I thought, oh, right, a few tweaks. And he sent me the cover. And it was more or less the cover that's on the, on the, on the cover now. Um, and I saw it and I just thought, my God, what have they done to my lovely, tasteful cover? My lovely, <laughs> style, gorgeous poster. There's, there's cows everywhere and bright colours and all of these things. Where's my lovely muted, you know, sort of like light blues and... To, you know all of the you know the d- duck egg blue and all of it for about a minute and then about for another minute I started talking my way round into liking it and then I just thought actually no this is the right cover because it gives you that sense of nostalgia and fun and energy and you're thinking what on earth's going on here and it's the perfect cover for the book but it just shows you like I, I in my head I was absolutely wedded to the really beautiful tasteful Scandinavian one. 
Yeah, it is a brilliant cover. And that was a very smooth segue into us talking about your book. I'm very impressed. Let's talk about your new book now, which is what we were going to get to anyway. Your brand new book, well, it's been out for a a little while now, um, The Miseducation of Evie Epworth. Uh, Tell everyone about that. It's a coming of age story, I suppose. It's a coming of age story times two, because you've got the the normal coming of age story for Evie. She's a 16 and a half year old girl. And it's that funny point in, in everyone's life between being a child and being an adult. And I mean, I, I can remember very clearly being that age and, and having kind of like you, the rest of your life stretched out in front of you, like this infinite universe of possibilities and potential. And you're, you're kind of thinking, what can I do? You can do anything, but then what is it you can do? And you're just full of energy. And I wanted to capture that energy. There's a quite a famous sculpture by Thomas Heatherwick called The Bee of the Bang. And he did it for, I think, the Manchester Commonwealth Games. And he was trying to capture the energy, the moment just before an explosion happens, at the nanosecond just as it happens. And I kind of wanted to get that energy in the book of this 16 and a half year old girl on the verge of adult life and all these possibilities. Um, So that's one coming of age thing. But the other coming of age is the coming of age of the decade, really. The book is set in 1962. And the reason I I really wanted it in 1962, because in my day job as a historian, I'm always talking about the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. And we talk about decades all the time, don't we? And Of course, the 60s, the cultural phenomenon of the 60s didn't start on the 1st of January 1960. And I wanted to try and capture that moment when when the 50s, you know, the 50s sort of dribbled on into the 60s quite a lot. And I wanted to capture that moment. When did the 50s actually become the 60s? When did the 60s arrive? And I wanted, you know, the beginning of the book, I want you to to smell, you have wafts of the 60s on their way, what we understand of the, as the cultural phenomenon of the 60s. And, you know, by the end of the book, I wanted it to be like, oh, yeah, so the, the 60s have kind of arrived in this small village in Yorkshire. Yeah, because somebody, I was talking to somebody else about this recently, because I always had it in my head, I guess, which most people do, that the 60s was exactly what you say, you know, 1960 arrived and suddenly the world changed, but clearly that wasn't going to happen, was it? But apparently it was only really quite a small section of the decade, which is what we all understand it to be, you know, when the music started to change and the fashion changed and this whole kind of cultural revolution. Absolutely. I think you probably had, you know, what, what, what we understand as the 60s, the, you know, the fashion and the music and the style and the free love and all of that. I think probably, you know, two or three streets in Chelsea probably had it in, in 1960 or 61, but, but no more than that. You know, like the rest of the country was still very much 1957, you know, uh, yeah. you know even, even by that time. Especially if you're talking about a village in Yorkshire. Absolutely. To propagate to the small villages, it would take quite some time, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I wanted the characters to do that as well. So there are certain characters which very much embody, we're the 1950s and we're always going to be the 1950s. And also, you know, the other characters where it's the future, you know, like the, some certain characters arrive and it's, you just think, wow, okay, this, this here is the 60s. This is what life's going to be like in, in, in lots of different ways for the fashion and the food and the music and, and just the, the way of thinking and everything. So where did the actual idea come from? Obviously, you talked about the fact that you wanted to talk about the decade, but where did Evie come from? Well, I mean, it's interesting, actually. I, I've always wanted to write a novel. And I did literature at university and I've always enjoyed writing. I thought, oh, I really want to write a novel. And 
I just never have for various reasons like with work and stuff. And and I, I kind of like got into my 40s and had a midlife crisis and thought, right, no, come on, now I've got to, I've really got to write that novel. And I, I enrolled at the Faber Academy on a six-month writer novel course. And I can remember very clearly the first day I kind of went on and you all sit down there and the teacher went around everybody and said, okay, what's your novel about? What's your novel about? And everybody had an idea what their novel was about. And I thought, how on earth do these people know what their novel's about? It's the first day. I thought we'd be talking about our novels on week four or something like this. And so I just made something up about, I was doing a PhD at the time and I I fictionalized my PhD. I blagged my way through it. And then, and then came home and thought, no, I don't want to do that. I, I want to write a novel. And I'd had the idea of um, yeah, th- uh, trying to examine the 60s and this, 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 this voice, this really energetic, vibrant voice, half Adrian Mole, half Bridget Jones. I knew I wanted to do something like that. And I just sat down and started writing. And I think for the first, like, I don't know, two minutes, I, I, I kind of based it a little bit on my mum and a little bit on me. And then after, <laughs> you know, trying to get that in. And then, and then suddenly, by, even by, before I got to the end of the page, Evie's voice was just there and she was her own person. And I don't know how it worked, but the voice just took over me. It sounds really pretentious and silly, but I've seen some interviews that Sue Townsend did when she talks about Adrian Mole, and she says something very similar, like the mole arrives. And it's like that when I sit down and write Evie. It's just I get into Evie's world, and it just comes really easy. And I love it. I really enjoy writing with that sort of like sense of fun and energy. A bit like I was saying about Paddington, the idea where a 16-and-a-half-year-old girl would understand something one way and, and us as a kind of well me as a middle-aged male reader uh, you know understands it a different way and I love that sort of like funny tension there you can have so much fun in that I think misunderstanding <laughs> what you said about the voice appearing is really interesting because when I talk to people about when they write their books there's a real range in writing techniques and and how people come up with the idea and also how they actually get on and write the book itself so some people are quite structured, some people let the mood take them. So they might do a bit of writing one day, but might not the next. How did it work with you? Because if you had Evie's voice coming at you, did you find that you just kind of sat and wrote and wrote and wrote? Or did, did you still keep quite a structured routine through the writing process? I had quite a structured routine just because of work, really. I mean, what I'd love to do is just to do nothing other than write. That would be wonderful. But I, I kind of fitted writing in around work. So as I'd be working, uh, you know, I'd just like switch off and go into sort of you know, matson mode and go off to work. And then I'd just come back from work, yeah, eat something very quickly and sit down and then start scribbling down notes on paper for, you know, the next section that I wanted to write and just sit down and and enjoy myself, if I'm absolutely honest, and 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 really try and make myself laugh. You know, the, the book's hopefully quite funny and, and, and I sort of enjoyed that crafting nice funny stories and sentences and things what my writing process is this really I I like to try and wake up quite early and get started and and the last thing at night when I finish writing I'll probably just jot down a few ideas because I'm not very good with a blank page so I sort of stumble out of bed at half five in the morning sit down cup of tea and thankfully I've got my notes from the night before and I'll sort of read those in you know pre-tea state 
and, and then try and start, you know, getting into it. And, and I start getting into it by rereading what I wrote the day before and just doing a little bit of editing. And then, boom, it comes. And just having those bullet points or some ideas of knowing roughly where I'm going to go for the next little section, that's really helpful. And then I'll probably just have that. And that's good then because I've got some writing done. And psychologically, that makes a massive difference. If I've got some writing done, it's going to be a good day. So then I can have yeah. breakfast and all that come back down and plan maybe for the for the rest of the day or for the morning however much time I've got and just plan what do I want to do and try and get that done and it's just right stare at wall right cup of tea right <laughs> think about do I need to clean the oven right and and but yeah but I, I really enjoy it and I love it and on days when I'm not working I can quite happily and easily stay at home writing all the way through to 11 o'clock at night and just love it if I'm honest yeah Wow. See, that's amazing. Obviously, we're speaking to a few people in this series. And the person I spoke to a couple of weeks ago, Gideon, he was talking about the fact that whilst he really enjoys writing, the concept of having written a book, the actual process of writing, he finds quite difficult or not actually that interesting. So it's really interesting speaking to different people about their experiences. So it's lovely to hear that you kind of get joy from from sitting down and just getting on with it. It's brilliant. Yeah, it kind of releases strange things, chemicals in your in your head, I think. You know, that creative process. I mean, again, that sounds really pretentious, I know, but it's <laughs> But it, it, it's, I mean, it does something anyway, you know, it's like, it's like either that or, you know, a, a glass of whiskey or something, something's been released into my head. And, and it just makes me very happy when, when I've sat down and I've written something and I like it. And time just becomes this big, flexible blob that, you know, I, I could have been sat down for what feels like 10 minutes, and it's been two and a half hours just working on two sentences. But by the end of it, there'll be you know, the the, well, the perfect two sentences for me at that time, and, and I, it makes me really happy. And 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 as you're doing that, or as, as I'm doing that, I'll often just have you know lots of ideas will just come from well, who knows where where they come from, and they sort of like come dashing into my brain, and I'm just try and get them down on paper because with me that I'm not very good at remembering things I've got a rubbish memory so the more stuff I can jot down on paper and it just acts as a you know visual aid memoir that's really helpful for me so that's going on at the same time as writing and, and shaping and editing the sentences but it's it's a process I enjoy and I can't wait to get back to it I mean it's been lovely going around doing lots of publicity meeting people but I haven't got that much writing done so I'm looking forward to that in the autumn and what are you going to be working on in the autumn um, I'm going to be working on a follow-up to The Miseducation of Evie Epworth. So when I thought of, of the book, I thought of it as as a series of three. It's a trilogy. And I want to visit and, uh, Evie every 10 years of her life, so 62, 72, 82-ish. And I've got very clear, I know what's going to happen and where she's going to go and dealing with various issues. So that's what I want to do. I want to try and get I don't know, the, the Evie trilogy. <laughs> the excellent, that's my excellent. But when you're actually writing, it, how long did the whole process take and how did you get to where you are now? Well, from beginning that first day at the Faber course and Faber Academy to writing the end, so we went for the final full stop on, that was about two years. And then okay. that was just for the first draft. But I always think the first draft is just you telling yourself the story because I, I, I'm not a massive planner. And, and I kind of, with the first book, I knew roughly where I wanted to be at the end and roughly where I wanted to be in the middle. 
And and I kind of, for the first year, it was me going from the beginning to the middle, just in a very sort of free-flowing way. And, and I can remember getting to the scene that was for me in the middle and then thinking, oh, right, now what happens? How do I get from here to the end? And then I started really planning quite well because you had to, you know, lots of stuff happens in the second part of a book. So that was me. The first draft, those two years, was me telling myself the story. And then I did two big edits. So I put the book to one side for a couple of months, completely forgot about it, came back, printed it out, got my red pen out and chopped out about 20,000 words and, and added some yeah. words as well. That, and that's really hard to start with. So to start with, you're, you're kind of, you don't want to take anything out because you think, oh, my precious words, my babies, you know, everyone's perfect. Like I'll probably chop one out. And eventually you think, oh, well, maybe I can just remove this one word. And then you find another word. And then eventually like, oh, a bit of, you know, a few words here, a phrase, oh, maybe a sentence. And by the end of it, you're like a paragraph, chop that section out. It needs to go. It's not doing anything. And that's, yeah. Chop, chop, chop. And it's great. And again, that sort of releases nice chemicals into your brain as well. Because it really, it gives you a, a really good focus about what is the book about? What are you trying to say? What is this character trying to do in this chapter? And just the chopping out and the editing is, that is absolutely as important as the writing. That is all absolutely part of the writing. So I did two big edits and that was another year altogether. And that took me through to... January 2019 and I finished probably near the end of January 2019 and I could remember from the Faber course um, agents coming in and saying right okay what you must do is try and find when you start sending it out you must try and find agents who are interested in your kind of book because there's no point in sending I don't know, historical fiction to an agent who's only interested in sci-fi or dystopian fiction or something. So I yeah. went through um, on the internet, spent the whole weekend going through and trying to find agents who I thought would like my kind of book. So kind of Nina Stibbies, Kate Atkinson, humor, a bit quirky, that kind of thing. Um, and had, I think I had a list of 36. And I thought, well, I'll send them out in tranches of five every every couple of months or something. And by the time I get to agent number 28 or 29, somebody might have got back to me, hopefully. And I started sending them out on the Monday morning and the first five. And yeah, the, by, by I think the end of that day, somebody got back to me saying, can I have the full manuscript, please? I love this. And then I woke up the next morning and there were another couple. And by like lunchtime, the day after on Tuesday, they'd all got back to me requesting the full manuscript, which, and oh I, I just felt like, I, I felt like Cinderella or something. It was not what I was expecting at all. It was all very overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, it's not a normal story. You hear of people sending stuff out, like you say, exactly what you thought was going to happen. And it's kind of lost in an abyss for ages. What an amazing thing to have such a great response. Well, I mean, it, it was lovely, but very overwhelming because it was extremely unexpected. I absolutely had just told myself, right, nothing will happen until I get to, you know, agent number 25 or something like that. And I can remember, you know, I was teaching at the time and working. So I'd be going into the classroom having a couple of hours teaching, coming out, and there'd be, you know, more emails from these agents. Because, of course, what happens then, all these five agents, they all know about each other. And they're all, they all wooed me. It's the, the first time <laughs> ever in my life that I'd been wooed. It was like the first and last, probably. And it was just incredible. Because what I found out subsequently is that you generally tend to sign up with the agent who you first meet, 
which is exactly what I did. But, you know, all the agents know that. So they all want to meet you first. So they're all saying, oh, you know, we'll come and, and meet you, take you for breakfast or we'll meet you at the V&A and we'll do this. But I had no idea. And I was just completely overwhelmed by this. And, and I had agents who were reading the, the full manuscript and they'd be live emailing. So they'd be you know, like, oh, I'm on chapter seven and this has just happened. Ha ha. It's really good. And oh, God, chapter nine. I love this. And it was so weird to have that. It was just so unexpected. And, and I've, yeah, so I, I ended up going with the agent who I first met, so Alice at Curtis Browns. And, and then it was through Alice that we, that was just a few weeks before um, the London Book Fair in 2019. And that's when it all went very quiet then. And Alice had warned me in advance, things are just going to go very quiet now because I just need to get out there and meet the publishers and try and sell the book. But, you know, you, we're not guaranteed selling it and all of this. And so it just went quiet. And, and, and I think because I'd had all the the drama of the being wooed by the five agents it felt very strange for it to suddenly go quiet and I thought oh god everyone hates it nobody likes it and then she eventually came back after a couple of weeks and just said I think we had four publishers who were really interested in it and she said you know I think the, the one who would best fit you would be Chris at Scribner it was an imprint of Simon and & Schuster and met Chris and he's absolutely brilliant he's just the I can't imagine having a better editor or better person to work with he's wonderful and he's just been amazing and I had another year or actually about six months actually of of just doing edits with Chris and the edits were very much in the sense of oh I really like this character can you do you think we could have another little bit of that please or or for example in the book one thing that chris absolutely is entirely responsible for the book has always had quite a lot of food in it with cakes and food i think i'm quite a food person and chris said oh you've got a lot of food in the book and food's quite an important thing and food tells us about you know the, the time from the 50s and the 60s and all of that why don't you just try and put a recipe in the book and i thought what put a recipe in the book what has it gone mad you know, I'm not Delia Smith or something. I can't do that. <laughs> and I said, yeah, just give it a try. And um, he gave me Nora Ephron's Heartburn, which I'd never read. And that has got recipes in. And that's a brilliant book. And she kind of integrates recipes a little bit into the text, but they are, you know, only a certain extent. To a certain extent, they are just recipes on the page. And I thought, oh, well, I might have a have a go with this and have a bit of fun. Because I one thing that I... I've always enjoyed is sort of a little bit of sort of tricksy narrative and things and playing around with form. So I thought, oh, maybe what I might try and do is integrate the recipe into the narrative, you know, a lot more than than it just being on the page. And and I had to go with Evie's voice and sent it to Chris and he loved it and he thought it worked really well. And I showed it to a friend and she thought, oh God, yeah, that's really good. I like it. So I did that another couple of times. And and those elements, the recipes, they're real recipes. You can try them. We make them. That absolutely came from Chris. who's a wonderful editor. Well, that's brilliant. I think it's one of the most important relationships, isn't it? Between the editor and uh, and the author. It's got to be right. Absolutely. And, and Chris is absolutely right. You know, Alice, who's my agent, knows exactly what she was doing when, when she said, I really think, you know, Chris is the best match. Well, I think you've all done very well. I think she's done very well for finding the right publisher for you. But obviously the book is brilliant. And I absolutely, going back to what we were talking about earlier on about the cover, I love the cover. I think the cover's brilliant. It really pops off the shelf. And so we've got it in stock and we will continue to sell it like mad. But Thank you so much for coming along to this 
podcast today. I really, really appreciate it. And the listeners won't know because I'll have cut it all out, but we've had lots of lovely tech issues today. So <laughs> we had lovely chats whilst the technology wasn't working. So it's been really nice. We've had a good old matter, I think, you know, like, you know, oh. <laughs> Off, off <laughs> behind the scenes, we've had a good, good laugh. Yeah, I feel like we should have just given ourselves a cup of tea and a slice of cake, and everything would be sorted. I think it, it's the film podcast. That's what we need to do next. That's the kind of the- <laughs> right. On that note, so thank you again. It's re- been really lovely chatting to you, and best of luck with the future for your book. And I'll look forward to seeing the follow up at some point next year. Thanks. Thank you very much, Sarah. It's been really lovely chatting to you. And I really can't wait to come and say hello to you again at Mostly Books. It was such a a pleasure to come and visit you. Oh, thank you.